This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where there are buyers there who are always actively seeking wonderfully produced local products. And uh, we've got some to highlight uh, at Zupan's right now that are new in the store that you want to go and check out. Um, I'm particularly happy, finally. And I think I, I don't know if I had anything to do with this, but I know I had mentioned this to Zupan's a long time ago and to Proud Mary Coffee. You can now get Proud Mary Coffee at three Zupan's markets so you don't have to go over to Northeast Alberta, which is always a good idea because the cafe's open now. But you can get their great coffee at all three Zupan's. You know, they, they have... Uh, they do it by uh, mild, curious, and bold, and is that what it is? Bold? Wild. Wild. And you can get the, the roast that's right for you. Very nice. If you also want to stay local with something like a cold drink, maybe, think about Camellia Grove Kombucha. That's now available at your local Zupans. Um, if you're a kombucha enthusiast, which I am, nothing better, Chris, by the way, than a nice cold kombucha on a su- uh, summer night. Uh, we still have I'll a f- have to learn that. Yeah. That's going to have to be a learned experience. Um, so they've got yeah. great flavors available at your local Zupans, including a jasmine fl- flavor, which sounds great, delicate and floral. They've also got something called Meadow made with Smith meadow tea so uh, maybe if you're into the teas and uh have never tried kombucha camellia grove kombucha is the place to start and also one thing i've always felt zupans has a great selection of uh salsas and uh now there's some from somos foods they have a lot of featured products from somos uh Cuatro chili salsa, roasted tomatillo, jalapeno, roasted pasilla pepper, and and a few other varieties too. Um, so check those out uh, at Zupans. And if you need to cool off a little bit, they have dolceza ice cream or gelato now. Yeah. So um, take a look at those. Uh, those are awesome delicious peanut butter mash roasted strawberry stracciatella mascarpone and berries how about that nice what and what's great about this chris is that you know we're on a little bit of an international tour here at your local zupans is you think gelato you think italy of course but uh this comes by way of buenos aires so it's a uh, argentinian influenced gelato which is great right well, there's also new zealand ice cream with nico's there that's pretty new mm-hmm that you can check out, and you can check out Nico on our podcast. Very nice. Three locations to serve you. West Burnside, Macadam, and Lake Oswego, and one more that you can access from anywhere. Zupians.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angeles, Portland Food Adventures, and I'm co-host, Court Johnson. How are you, Court? I'm well. It's the uh, dog days of summer. Things are wrapping up. We had this realization in the house just a few days ago that uh, I think the girls are three weeks away from going back to school, Mm. which is crazy because it feels like summer just kind of got started. We finally got our summer vacation in. But uh, now we're already talking about school shopping and heading back to class. Wow. Well, you only have a few more years of that. And then, right. then that'll be in the past. It's so long ago for me that uh, not, e- not even a thought these days. But for me personally, I'm realizing I've got a lot coming upon me. We've got a trip on the Snake River next week um, with Jonathan Gill from Ringside Steakhouse. So that's going to be four days off the grid for me. And then yeah. uh, off to Italy on September, in the middle of September for, um, for a month, Italy and Spain. So um, getting ready for those trips, and I'm excited about that, too. And just starting to fill up our April trip to Basque Country, too, with Urdaneta. So uh, anybody who's listening to this podcast who wants the awesome trip to Basque Country, Spain, I'm happy to talk to them about that, too, because... Right now we have room, and those go fast to Spain, so looking forward to that, too. 
I think I think a lot has to be said with that. I mean, you can put together your own trips to these places, but you're never going to get something as unique as what you're doing, Chris, where you're going to uh, countries with somebody that has experienced it, that has lived there, in, it often is the case, and knows the ins and outs, and you don't have to worry about some of the, the uh, planning that may or may not work out for you when you're doing it on your own. Well, not only that, the plans that we make are pretty awesome. We're going to a yeah. farm that's been in the family for 500 years out in the Basque country, and that's something you just can't, can't do on your own. And the right. other nice thing is we have a great group of generally Portlanders who go on these trips, so it's who all share an interest in food, which those folks listening to this podcast, I assume they have that interest as well. So, um, yeah, it's pretty cool. This is a, it's a working formula. We've been doing it since, since 2015. How about this? I just sent a text to uh, our friend Jose Chessa, who's now at Blue Hill in New York, formerly of a, a Taula in mm-hmm. um, Portland, and uh, just said, hey, man, you know, because the memories from the trips come up in my Facebook feed a lot. Said, hey, right. man, this would be fun to do again, wouldn't it? And he wrote back, that's, and he said, actually, I would love to do that. So I am going to try to get people get together with Jose in Spain again. That would be, that, those were just incredible trips and one of my valued friendships of my life that I formed through all that travel with Jose over the years. So, yeah. Jose is the OG of these trips. He was the the first one you went on, on these trips with, correct? Right. He was. We did the yeah. first three with him. Well, we we interspersed one or two after the sure. first year or two, but yeah, no, he's. It's just really fun, and uh, I, I always say it's the perfect embodiment of what I've been trying to do with Portland Food Adventures since I started it in 2010, which was the precursor to this podcast, and uh, you know, trying to establish uh, opportunities to get to know chefs better. There is no better right. way than to spend seven days or eight days or nine days or 10 days with them elsewhere. So uh, anyway, yes, it is a fun thing and I'm looking forward to it, but I've never done five in one year. And uh, so we're coming up on three more to go and um, then we'll have those um, behind us and uh Ready to plan some more so and do some more podcasts. I will say, hey, Court, I like the idea of expanding outside of people who are necessarily the f- taste makers in the food world and talking to some interesting people and interspersing their food experiences in there. Like, have you know, sitting around a table eating, talking to people about stuff and food. I think, I think we want to go in that direction in year nine. As we approach near your nine. Yeah, I don't think you've run into a big stretch because a lot of these people who probably visibly sit outside the food world probably have either friends or connections to the food world because, you know, Portland is as big of a city it is. It's really just kind of a big town and everybody kind of knows each other. So there's right. connections well, all over will, the place. As I say that, I will invite people to write us, I guess, where is it? At uh, right at the fork at gmail.com yep. comes to us. Mm-hmm. Um, or Chris at portlandfoodadventures.com. If you have any interesting dynamic guests, not people we have to pull along the way, right? but uh, in the food world um, who are available and return phone calls <laughs> or text messages, emails, emails. phone calls. Yep. Uh, and actually care enough to uh, respond, then I'm, we're, we'll welcome those uh, communications and those ideas. It's become a really weird, weird world where people know, like an acceptable way of saying no is just not even responding. Even people who say, I'll do it on Tuesday, and then you never hear from them again. That's right. their, oh, I can't do it. So... Uh, I'm getting a little tired of that. It never used to happen before. I find it interesting that it never happened when we actually were recording in the studio. We could get people to a physical place easier than we can get them to their laptops with some earbuds on to record this podcast. I, I just, I don't know if it's the sign of the times after covid but or just i'm getting older who knows well you, we, you're getting older too well right we experienced a little bit of that this morning though chris as you and i kind of had a tentative time to record and because we're both at home and i'm at home i had some stuff pop up that i had to deal with at the moment because i was here 
And so I had to text you and say, hey, I'm going to be a little delayed. Um, that's okay. I, I can, I'll take that all day long. Yeah, yeah. But and I think that's that, you and I doing this. Yeah, but I think that's kind of part of it is as people work out of their homes, they're, it's easier for them to just let everything just mix. And so there's no there's no barriers, which there, you know, time, it's just all, it's a mess is what I'm saying. I can buy that, but I can also go back to when we get people in a studio and they work in kitchens. Yeah. Can't, couldn't something have come up? It rarely ever did. Sure. Where someone would say, hey, I'm going to be a half hour late or not make it. Yeah. That happened once, I think, in the whole time we yeah. recorded in the studio. So, well, Chris, that, uh, that that's our problem. It's not our listeners' problem. So maybe we just need you. You and I should figure it out. We we've we've talked about this before. <laughs> yes, I know, and it's not our. It's I'm not trying to make it our listeners' problem. Sure. But the fact is, we're running a repeat this week because someone booked out on us that's on right. the last minute, and yeah, then yeah. I tried very hard to reschedule somebody, and it's hard in a day. Yep. So. So we're doing a repeat that actually makes a lot of sense, and I'm glad. Um, so uh, out here in on the coast, one of the well-known folks that you'd run into a lot at farmer's markets and just around town was a gentleman by the name of Jeff Trenary, and we had him on the podcast in year one, July of 2014. That's eight years ago, Court. Wow. Crazy. At home. Yeah. I know, it's crazy. So we had him on the podcast then. He and I used to hang at Dixie's Vino, which is no longer, which went by the wayside with the tornado here in Manzanita. Right. Um, but uh, he's a really good guy and, and has been had been farming in Halem for a long time. And uh, he also had a really interesting past, had been to the James Beard House, traveled with chefs also. So we had an interesting conversation with him eight years ago. And I used to run into him um, periodically and he would say, hey, I'd love to do that podcast again. Well, we're going to do it today. But sadly, we're doing the podcast again. It's a repeat because Jeff is no longer with us. Mm. Um, The last year of his life was a really rough one. It was uh, uh, July 2021. His house just burned to the ground with everything, every possession he had. He had someone who offered him a place to live while the farm was still operating. Um, and then uh, I believe it was about seven months later, uh, word came around that he passed away in February of this year. So um, I was uh, at our farmer's market the other night and thought, oh, Maybe Jeff would be good to finally honor Jeff's desire and have him on the podcast again. So this is it today, uh, Jeff Trenary. Court, I have his obituary here and some interesting tidbits, which I think might be nice as a little background for this podcast. Yeah. Um, you think that's a good idea? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey, I'm not going to read it the whole thing, but some of it. Jeffrey Adair Trenary, 71, passed away at 2.30 p.m. on February 9th in Arch Cape, lovingly surrounded by his children and sisters. Jeff was an Oregon native, born in Portland in, on August 16, 1950. He attended Madison High School, and he received his GED from the University of Oregon. He leaves behind his three children and uh, more family. Um, and so he moved to Nehalem in 1986, began his life's work as an organic produce farmer. His farm, Kingfisher Farms, supplied produce to people along the coast in Portland and even as far as New York. If you were lucky enough to have had the pleasure of being nourished by his beautiful harvest, then you know he was the true OG farmer out on the coast. He was often stoic and gruff, but also gladly shared his knowledge of farming, the history of the area, and most definitely enjoyed eating good food, drinking good wine, and telling tall tales with good company. Jeff was an avid surfer for most of his life, and as a teenager spent all his free time at the coast, he could often be spotted hitchhiking to his favorite beach, Short Sand. He loved to travel, spent many winters in Mexico, Hawaii, Italy, Bali, and Thailand. He often shared his memories from his time spent in Norway helping to build boats. Jeff was a lover at heart and shared his life with those who took the time to know him. He will be greatly missed. 
And so uh, I know I will. I used to enjoy hanging out and talking to him once in a while. He was, he was, a, he was a good soul, and uh, I think that comes through in this podcast from 2014, July of 2014. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupans and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupans is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupans Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years now, Ringside has been providing the best in steaks and has been the home for the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Now featuring dining in their updated dining room and al fresco in one of the nicest outdoor dining spaces in the city. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com and while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about the exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. And by Portland Food Adventures. Featuring the best chef-centric experiences in Portland since 2010. Go to portlandfoodadventures.com to see about the exciting trips our host Chris Angelus leads to places you have dreamed of going, like Western Sicily, this September. It's time to stretch your international wings and expand your culinary horizons. Let Portland Food Adventures do all the planning to the best dining and culture all over Europe and elsewhere with Portlanders you'll get to know and enjoy. PortlandFoodAdventures.com. Did you come in from the coast today? Yeah, I did. How was the? Uh, how so? You're coming in twice a week. Yeah, coming on uh, Wednesdays and Saturdays. And so, what are you doing on Wednesdays and Saturdays? Uh, drive around a lot of different restaurants, doing deliveries, trying to meet new people, talk to people about stuff. You know. So you're doing. You're doing your own sales too. Yeah, much. yeah. We uh, we do everything. So by we, or I do everything. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say by we. You're talking about I. So uh, how much of your time are you spending? Look, like how do you how do you find new? I never thought of you as a salesperson. I thought of you as a farmer. So all of a sudden we're right there. But how do you do your go about building your business? Is it the prospecting? Well, you know, um, you know, it started a long time ago and. Um, you know, oh, about 20 years ago. And um, originally, I, I would just go around and, you know, knock on somebody's door. And started with Greg Higgins, actually, um, when he was still at the Heathman. And, but um, it's hard to sell produce when you don't actually have any. You know, if you're trying to figure So 20 it, years ago, you had nothing? Or? I, well, yeah, I, I had a farm. But so did, you, did you grow up on a farm? I, I mean, kind of... Well, I, um, I grew up around farming... Quite a bit, actually. Um, my grandmother um, had a really large egg operation, and she always had about a half-acre garden. And then I had uh, other relatives that lived out in Gresham that uh, grew berries and uh, grapes and other kinds of crops. And um, I ended up working on a lot of farms when I was a kid out there in Gresham, you know, planting cabbage and cauliflower and broccoli and stuff like that. And, then, and of course, picking berries. If you grew up in Oregon, uh, you know, a berry picker? You were a berry picker, you know. Uh, before the Hispanics uh, showed up here, um, it was just all white people picking berries and picking fruit trees and stuff, you know. So now you only find them on the, on the farms going in to pick them for $4 or uh, whatever quantity. Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, basically everybody that works for me is Hispanic, and um, I've, I've gone through a lot of different... Uh, methods of trying to run a farm um you know trying to get a new crew every year and do you really have to start from scratch every year you know uh, no no i don't uh the guys that work for me now they've been with me for 14 years uh so and do you keep them busy around the, around yeah, the calendar I, yeah all year round? yeah we like this last year we there was only two weeks that we did deliver out of the whole year and that was during that snowstorm and during that big freeze in december and uh, but uh, it takes a lot of time to find new accounts because, uh, you know, you got to drive around. You got to kind of in your mind pick who you want to go see if you, you know, they'll talk to you or not. And you got to ask some produce in your car to show them. And 
But don't you get a lot of uh, referrals? I mean, a lot oh, of people say, or would think it would come the other way. Hey, go see Jeff. Jeff's well, yeah, guy. Yeah, I, I do. But, uh, you know, sometimes there's a, a restaurant of notoriety that I just, you know, like to be there, be selling my stuff to. And uh, so, you know, if you come to Portland or I come to Portland and decide that that's what I'm going to do today, I usually I can only see about three different people, you know. It takes that much time to drive around and, you know, um, most of the time they're cold calls if I do it that way. But over the last few years, I, it's been mainly through referrals. And, like, you know, chefs move around a lot from restaurant to restaurant. And, you know, maybe I'll know a chef at one restaurant for a couple of years and he'll move to a new place and tell the, the owner or the executive chef, you know, this guy's you know, grows good produce and should try him out. And so it's not a slam dunk when a, when a chef goes from one restaurant to another, he's just going to use you. It's more a function of the restaurant owner, the relationships they have too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had some really great relationships with different chefs and they left a restaurant that I was dealing with and then I never heard from them again, you know, but, uh, or maybe it took four or five years and all of a sudden you run into them at some event or something and, and uh, got to give them a hard time. Hey, how come you're not buying from me? You know? So uh, when you're out talking to new chefs, what do you tell them Kingfisher has or you have that is uh, better than somebody else or just why they should order from you? What? Well, um, main thing is, uh, you know, because one of my big products is salad mix and uh, we're doing close to 400 pounds of salad a week right now. And um, I generally, um, people who are selling salad, um, I consider my salad mix to be kind of a more industrial mix. It holds up really good. It tastes really good. But there's some people out there that are making salads that are really fine and have, you know, uh, delicate herbs in them. And uh, the, the, those kind of salads can maybe only last two or three days. Um, my salad will last a whole week at least. And, and especially compared to uh, the salads that are being shipped out of California that uh, they totally dry them and they actually, they put this clay substance in the water um, that's not, they don't even have to tell you that it's in the, but it actually dries the leaf out. So they're shipping in boxes that are not waxed and uh, their product has to be absolutely dry, but then the shelf life is not as good and the taste and quality is not as good as kind of a fresh made salad you can get here in Oregon. So, um you're, are you eating a lot of salads? Oh, sure. So you, are you always tasting salads and oh. saying, hey, I, I could, this is my lettuce, or gee, this is really good, maybe I should try this? Or, Well, over the years, I've found varieties of all the different ingredients in my salad. Um, you, want a, you want a salad leaf that's going to have shelf life, but still be a crisp and flavorful leaf. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different varieties of lettuce out there. Some of them don't taste good. Some of them last a really long time. Some of them taste really good. Some of them, you know, that taste really good don't last a long time. So how did you learn how to make the, the perfect lettuce? Well, I used to go to California to this uh, thing called the Echo Farm Conference. And um, I went there for 20, 20 years in a row. And that's still going on. It, it uh, takes place down in Asilomar in Pacific Grove. And, uh, Every year that I would go to this uh, event, they would do these tours of about five or six farms. And so every year I'd go on the tour and a and, uh, couple of different times I was fortunate enough to go to salad farms and just be able to talk to people on the farm, the owners, uh, you know, and, and I got really interested in making salad myself. And there was this uh, guy, uh, T.D. Willie. Uh, who was one of the first people who started the whole big salad revolution in California. And when did that start? That uh, it was um, in the early to mid-80s. Uh, you know, some people were on that boat a long time before that, you know, but not on a large scale, you know. Hmm. The salad revolution. Yeah. There's yeah. a book for you. <laughs> so when you, uh, so how did you end up with a farm? Was it a plan? Did you end up with it? And how did you end up out in? Uh, is it Nihalem? 
Nahalem, yeah. Well, um, did I pronounce that wrong? I've been pronouncing it Nahalem, and I've heard people out there now that I've pronounced it Nihalem. It's it's an Indian word, so Nihalem is really right. Okay, so yeah. I wasn't off. You're not too far off. I'll go back to Nahalem. I'm yeah. fine with that. So, how did you end up out there? Well, um, I started surfing when I was quite young, and so that was my big draw to go to the coast was that I just wanted to live at the beach and go surfing every day. What's the best surfing beach out there? Well, oh, there. you know, Short Sands, Cola State Park, and Seaside is really good. Seaside has world. How about Pacific City? How's that's that? that's a good place, too. It's not so good in the wintertime, but, uh, uh, you know, in the this time of the year, the wind's blowing out of the north. Northwest, you can't miss it. As I've been out there every day, that's it's and it's strong. Yeah, and in the and in the winter, it's blown out of the south. So you have to find these beaches that protect are protected from the wind. Um, like right now, Short Sands um, is got that big northern bluff that goes out there, so that's protected from the wind. And the way that the beach actually faces uh, towards the water, the Wind kind of blows offshore there a bit, which is better for the surf. Oh, so that's why we see more people there now. Yeah. Right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the farm. So the farm. Um, well, I kept telling myself and everybody I knew that I was going to be a farmer one day, and I kept saying that for about 20 years. And and then I ended up living in Europe for a couple of years and uh, traveled around, and I saw all these people you know, involved in really small-scale small scale agriculture. Uh, which really excited me, and um, I thought to myself, well, I can do that myself. So when I came back to the United States, uh, which was in 79, I uh, immediately went to work trying to find a piece of property to rent because I didn't have any money, and uh, rented this beautiful farm outside of Astoria and started to refurbish the place and try to figure out what I was doing and and uh, then I got evicted, and uh, so that really changed my course, and uh, I ended up having to go to work for a couple of years doing different stuff. Um, ended up working at the Maritime Museum in Astoria for a while, and and then I got this opportunity down in Newport, Oregon, um, a really good location um, with... Uh, quite a bit of space and I knew a woman in Portland who uh, had a big retail uh, or wholesale nursery and she uh, fronted my wife and I all this plant material and we started a, a retail garden center and uh, right next door we started a produce market and the goal was to uh, learn and to uh, try to make money to get a piece of property which uh, worked out and uh, we looked all over for an adequate piece of property and um, took a long time to find the right place. Uh, and where so I, and now surfing wasn't the priority. It was, it was gravy if you found the place that was going to allow you to get out there for the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, just outside of Manzanita in Falcon Cove, there's an alternative private school called Fire Mountain School. And um, my kids had been going to uh, an alternative school in Newport, and we decided that we wanted them to go to that school. So we came up to the Manzanita area, Manzanita area and looked around and um, actually knew some people who were having a hard time keeping their place together financially. And, and uh, I was able to pick that place up and um, for a, a really reasonable price. And... How long ago was that? That was in 86. Oh, it's been a while. And you're going, uh, on, you're going on 30 years there. So um, I was really fortunate to be able to buy 20 acres in a small structure for $85,000, uh, which is now there's no way you could get that property around there for that price. And so then I set about trying to learn how to actually be a farmer. And, uh, uh Took a while, <laughs> you know, to really, um, you know, growing stuff is is one thing, um, but actually getting out and marketing it, and learning how to talk the talk about food and 
produce and uh, how to turn a failed crop into a successful crop. You know, it's like green garlic. Uh, uh, I had a really big garlic crop one year and I planted it in the wrong place. There was a lot of morning glory, which is bindweed. And it just wrapped itself all over the garlic and basically it ruined the crop and couldn't harvest it. And so all the bulbs stayed in the ground. And then the next spring, all that garlic started coming back up again. And somebody had mentioned to me one time about green garlic and how uh, great it is to make pesto with and braise it or whatever. And I started pulling up all that green garlic from it was growing really thick and came to Portland with it and started knocking on doors. And now I'm <clears throat> growing more green garlic probably than anybody else in the state. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. So, um, we're, this was in the mid-80s or late-80s that you're knocking on doors with green garlic? Uh, Were there a lot well, of doors to knock on back then? Well, back then? The, the green garlic happened in the 90s. In the 90s? Um, and um, the real time frame is, is that in 1991, I was growing cut flowers. Um, we, had our, we had our produce market down there in Newport, and we were selling tons of uh, flowers out of there. So... Um, and I knew a little bit about it, and my wife knew a lot more about that sort of thing. She uh, had been in the flower industry for quite a while before we started doing what we were doing. And um, Basically, the flower market is really a difficult market if you're really trying to sell fresh stuff. And I was trying to sell flowers through the flower market here in Portland, and, and uh, it was just... Uh, not profitable for me. Um, and then I decided that I was going to grow peas, and we planted almost an acre of peas. And uh, that was another unsuccessful crop. Um, I'm sure you've had a few that were they're learning experiences, are they not? I mean, oh, so yeah, once, yeah, once you a, learn once, you're not going to do it Yeah, again. it's a learning curve, you know. And um, that year... Um, it was really interesting what actually happened. Uh, we had successive plantings. Um, our first planting was probably, I don't know, two and a half feet tall, and the rest of them were just anywhere from just coming out of the ground to six inches to a foot. And we had a big storm, and a lot of birds were migrating through at the time, and they had to sit down because of the storm, and then they basically ate all my peas. <laughs> and... Uh, well, so, they had they had parents telling them they were younger to eat their peas, so they, <laughs> they did that. Uh, so that kind of ruined me financially for another short period of time. And I is I, that the life of a farmer? Is it financial? Is it is it a lot of up and down? Obviously, you're at the mercy of the weather. Yeah, and I'm at the mercy. And then of, the economy, I'm sure, didn't help in two thousand seven, eight. Uh, yeah, that was a big blow. Actually, yeah. that was a very big blow. I, you know, I had some restaurant accounts that were six hundred dollars a week that, you know, went down to two hundred dollars, one hundred fifty dollars. I mean, people were just, you know, staying at home. Everybody was freaked out financially, and stock market was terrible. So, so that's affected you more than a weather, a weather bad weather year was was the financial storm. Um, I'd say so. You know, and we've had several... And it's coming back now, I would think? Oh, it's coming back, yeah, quite a bit. That's I'm, good. Yeah. Um, the other big blow was uh, 9-11 uh, back then. Uh, remember, nobody could fly. The air air traffic was shut down for 10 full days. Right. And I probably lost 40% of my smaller restaurants in Portland over that period of time. Really? The they tour just, tourism was that important to them? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of restaurants around, you know, that... Or on a month-to-month -month deal, you know. I mean, it's pretty tough, you know. And once they start on a month-to-month -month deal, are they pretty solid accounts? I mean, you're not – are the other people coming in and undercutting you? or? And there's really not too much undercutting going on because everybody knows that if you sell produce below market value, you're only screwing yourself, really. Mm -hmm. You know, and I mean, it, it happens where, like last year – was a really good tomato year for everybody um and a lot of people just you know maybe it only been in the tomato market for a couple of years and they planted two or three thousand plants and in uh late july 
early August. They're just bumper crop of tomatoes, and the tomato price went from a buck fifty down to fifty cents there for a while, and people were just dumping their tomatoes, you know. A lot of tomato dishes going on, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. So when I first met you, which is interesting because I've spent time out of Manzanita now, and I'm, it's a pretty cool community because there have been quite a few times where I'm just sitting there and in comes Jeff and vice versa. Um, you've had a, you've done a lot of traveling around the world um, and eating. That's correct. Had some great food experiences. Yes. What are some of your favorite cities and and uh, some of your favorite food experiences? Well, New York City's got to be my favorite food city. I, I mean, uh, Bangkok, which I love. I love Bangkok, and that's a great food city too. But um, it's really different than the whole New York scene. And have you uh, been to Pak Pak and Padi? Have you tried those? Yeah, I don't like Pak Pak really. Okay, well, I, <laughs> you're you're the first one on the show to say that, but uh, but everybody can't love everything. No, you know what is it that what is it that you don't like? Um, a lot of his flavor combinations. Um, you know, a lot of them are very extreme, uh, which is not. Which that's what he's trying to do. Yeah, that's exactly what he's trying to do. But um, he's taken um, well a lot of his food he says is um, based in Chiang Mai. And I've spent some time in Chiang Mai and I ate about everything you could eat there. And it's quite a bit different than the food fair he's offering. And um, So do you it, think he's putting his own spin on oh, it? Oh yeah, it's, he's definitely putting his own spin. You know, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with his food at all. No, it's just to, it. to my taste. Yeah, no, it's all, yeah, it's it's, all subjective. Yeah, it's all or, subjective. You know, to my taste, it's not my favorite place in town, you know. And, um, you know, what is your favorite? Do you have good favorite Thai that you can access well, anywhere? Trodden Thai, which is on the corner of Sixth and Morrison on the east side, that place is really good. And a uh, small little funky place, but they do a really good job and very authentic food. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of Thai restaurants in Portland. Yeah, no, we all know, but uh, there aren't a lot of Chinese though. Somehow they're we, we got a lot of Thai, but not a lot of. Yeah, you got to go out to 82nd to get right. You know, I mean, there's some. Chinese restaurants downtown too, but uh, you want dim song though. You got to go out to eighty second, right? So do you get out there very often? I yeah, I've I've been out there a few times. Um, Chungking, that's a really good place. Uh, they got they have a lot of seafood there besides uh, duck and other stuff like that. You know, eighty uh, seconds really turned so, turned into an interest. So who night. does and and it, it doesn't have to be the comprehensive list. But who does magic with your produce, with your with the stuff that you bring them? Oh, well, Nostrana, um, Blue Hour, Clark Lewis. So you've been working biggest. with Kathy Wims for a long time? Oh, yeah, since back when she was at Genoa. And, um, yeah, long time. And you probably were, went to Genoa in its early days. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, back when they had a rotating shift of chefs, um, they would do... Anywhere from a week on or two weeks on, and then a new chef would come in. And that was a little difficult to deal with as far as, uh, you know, delivering produce there and trying to have a regular thing because, you know, Kathy really appreciated what my product, and but the next chef in line might not appreciate my product and have some other farmer, you know, so all of a sudden my sales would drop off there for a few weeks. Pausing just a moment here, Chris, to talk about one of our favorite places to eat here in Portland, an institution, a Portland institution, Ringside Steakhouse. And get excited because now Ringside is open seven days a week, so you can join them for indoor and heated patio dining any day of the week. The hours are Monday through Thursday, 5 to 9, Friday, 4.30 to 9.30, Saturday, 4 to 9.30, and Sunday, 4 to 9. So everything's closed. Close to the same, but go on Ringside's website to check out the updated hours and, of course, uh, see about their prime rib three-course $48 special that is moving back to its historic Monday. Yeah, that's really great. I, I, that's one of my favorite things to get at Ringside Steakhouse. So uh, you can put that back on the agenda for a Monday night. So make those reservations on the website. Check out the hours on the website, ringsidesteakhouse.com. What kind of um, uh, 
emotional attachment do you have to your produce? If someone rejects it and says, this isn't what I like, how, how do you feel about that? Oh, I take it pretty, pretty personal. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's well, your you baby. Know, it's your baby. Yeah. Uh, there's this one account I have. Uh, they always complain about my salad. It's either too wet or it's not got the right mix in it. And out of the 400 pounds of salad that I'm selling a week, they're the only people that complain. And, and you know, at first I was like, you know, I'd take it personally. And now I just realize that they're fussy and, you know, I just let it roll off my back. And, or they they have a different opinion, much like Pac Pac. You know, yeah, they, they have a, yeah, but they buy my salad, so. Yeah, well, then why are they buying it? If they're, they, I, I don't know. Do they're you ever just, pose that question? I mean, that's a little risky to ask as an insane. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to, um, I just don't want to push that particular account um, uh, too oh too yeah. hard because they're, they're just tricky to deal with, you know. But they're they're a good account because they're right next door to another uh, a, account that's really really good. So yeah, well you want to keep that keep that intact. So I interrupted you. Some of the other chefs that are doing great things with with your salad and or places you love to visit. Well, period. you know, uh, uh, Dustin Clark, um, who's not at Wildwood because it's not open anymore. No uh, one's at Wildwood. No one's at Wildwood. Uh, Dustin was really uh, good to work with, uh, but Brad Root out at Roots and um, and you know he's been all over town. He used to be at Higgins for years, and then he was at Wildwood, and and then Brad was running the uh, Overton Street Deli there at Wildwood before it failed, and uh, then Brad, you know, had made connections with a bunch of money people from Vancouver who were building malls, and so they built three restaurants for him out there and um, La Pella and Roots and 360. Um, he's he's sold off back to the uh, original owners. Uh, or oh, money. recently? Yeah, so... I haven't been there in a couple of years, but so uh, that's, La that's Pella, a trip for you to go, oh, now I got to go over there. Yeah, but nobody else is willing to go over there, so okay. I got those. So accounts. you do it from Manzanita yeah. or from Nehalem, yeah. and others are closer, so that's... yeah. That's some diligence. Well, it's really part. difficult to drive to Vancouver. I mean, if you hit the freeway, I know that's why I said I I uh, I used to go over there quite a bit, and then at, at too many times in late afternoon, forget it. I mean, if you got on the freeway at three o'clock, it could take you an hour from the Fremont Bridge to the Interstate Bridge, maybe you know, right? Yeah, uh, which is tough. devastating. So, you how know? much of your time is spent? In in the van or whatever your truck, whatever you're driving, and how much on the farm? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, last fall I I lost uh, an employee who had been with me for like six years, and um, he had been doing farmers markets for me and all of my driving um, for about six years. So you know, I'd come to Portland. How often. many markets do you do? I'm sorry. I'm doing three farmers markets in uh, Portland. No, I'm I'm doing three on the coast. Three on the coast. I used to do five markets. All oh, right, and you're not are you you're not in you're not doing markets. No, I'm not doing markets. In, so all in, your it's all commercial delivery. Yes, yeah, all commercial delivery. Yeah. So which markets are you doing on the coast while we're at it? Uh, Astoria, uh, Cannon Beach, and Manzanita. Manzanita starts up this weekend. Yeah, this looking Friday, forward yeah. to that. Yeah, yeah. Um. So. Uh, and you have to do the markets. Yeah, it's good. It's the best cash flow. It is. Yeah, it's you know retail price for everything. And is it pretty steady? Um, it has. Well, this will be the fifth or sixth year for the Manzanita market. And when that market first started, um, it was really, really good. Um, and then it, you know, it's it's got its highs and its lows and. Uh, like Astoria, it you know with the the way the economy went, Astoria started to be a not very profitable market, and we were actually it's th- the biggest of the three. Though. Yeah, we were actually thinking about pulling out of there for a while, and but then last year that market picked back up again, and uh, I've heard it's great. I haven't been there. I have well, to. it's one. Of, it's you know, um, it's one of the biggest markets in the state, but ninety nine percent of it is crafts. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I think this last weekend there was only four farmers there out of the 250 booths. 
So there, there's a situation where you don't want to be part of the one percent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. So, um, uh, and I was asking you before, how much time do you actually get oh, to spend farming? And well, um, that's a really tricky thing. You know, like I've been doing all my deliveries um, since last fall until just um, well today. I brought um, somebody with me to train to do the deliveries and. Hopefully that'll work out for the rest of the season and I get to stay on the farm more. Um, leaving the farm, um, you lose track of what's going on and it's really hard to manage your labor force. And you you really, to be able to do a really good job, you gotta be in the field walking around every day and looking at how things are going, um, seeing if you have any problems, you know, from insect or you know, watering needs or too much light, not enough light, you know, depending on if it's the greenhouses. and So, but you've, you are, you've traveled a lot. How do you manage to travel? If you said you have to be in the field every day, how does that, how does that work? Uh, well, I have a really good crew of people working for me. They know how, I mean, because they've been there 14 years, they, they know what to do. So you, you, yeah, we just confident. stay in touch on the phone constantly. Right. Like I, I went to, uh, I went to Hawaii for three weeks this winter and in December. And luckily, um, well, I don't know if it was luck or not, but it was it was during that freeze in December. And so we basically just shut things down almost, because um, uh, I mean everything was frozen and we were delivering the stuff that we had our storage crops from the cooler, because we have a big walk-in cooler and. So, um, you know, and then the guys would come to work every day and just make sure everything was, you know, going, going right, you know. Um, but, you know, several years ago, I was in Thailand for a few months uh, and I was on the phone pretty much every day talking to the farm and talking to my customers. And, you know, because of the time change, I would have to be on the phone from about one in the morning till two in the morning, talk to my restaurant accounts in Portland and but I'd be sitting in a beach chair with my feet in the water and acting like a big shot on the phone. That's a nice thing. <laughs> yeah, you were a big shot on the phone. Um, so um, some of your, uh, we we were met at Vino. That's correct. In Manzanita. I love that place. So do Dixie's I. Dixie's great. Everybody's yeah. there. Great fig. Um, so where else do you go on the coast that you, you're enjoying? Well, um, um, my buddy, John Newman, who I've been to New York with five times, he's got a restaurant in Cannon Beach. I, I like to What do you guys there. do when you go to New York? Well, I've, every time I've been there with him, we did a, a dinner at the James Beard House. Oh, nice. Uh, twice with, uh, when he was working with the Stephanie and Steve Martin Hospitalities. Mm-hmm. Great company. And, uh, they're, uh, you know, they buy a lot of produce for me too. And, uh, then the last three times it was, uh, John's own restaurant that we were doing the beard house dinner with. And, mm-hmm. uh, so we ship my produce out there and, and, um, you know, I get to work in the kitchen and prepping stuff and plating when it comes time to do that. And, and then, uh, the way it works at the beard house, you know, you come in, you get to walk right through the kitchen and, and whoever's doing the wine with the uh, dinner, they usually, uh, they have this big, uh, outdoor area. Um, so you, you know, you're, pumping out these hors d'oeuvres and the staff at the beard house, they're so professional. They have to deal with another chef, a new chef every single night, you know, which is amazing that their staff can deal with that whole scene like that and, and do such a job. So their staff is walking around with all these appetizers. How big is the staff? Oh, uh, I don't know, probably 20 people. And how many, how many seats in the dining room? Uh, three, maybe, you know. Oh, that's it. Well, you know, I mean, uh, how many seats? Yeah, how many oh, seats? Oh, 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 no. Uh, you know, we're plating a hundred people, maybe. Okay, yeah, I was yeah. thinking. I, I, was, I maybe, thought you I said don't know suit. what I'm talking about. Suit. suit. No, uh, no, 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 no. No, yeah, there's, the, we, we played about. <laughs> suits, there's three suits walking around being a pain in the ass. Uh, you know, we, you know, do between a hundred, 115 plates, you know, in a night and, and. So it starts off with people come in and they get a walk through the, the right through the kitchen um, to the back and they've got this uh, 
big kind of like greenhouse structure and and then a beautiful outdoor area with trees and shrubs and you know it's hard to find something like that in Manhattan actually and um so you you get your you know you get your complimentary wine and you're eating your appetizers and and then finally it's time to go upstairs and into the dining room and sit down and um and then usually the chef will walk through and talk about the dinner a little bit and and then that, I'm usually there at that point in time too and uh people are getting served and um so I walk around and I talk to people at their tables you know why they're eating and talk about food politics and food and how's the dinner and are they uh are they excited to be talking to a farmer in Oregon and yeah in the they New are York there's City? there's not very many chefs who bring their farmer with them you know in fact I I think John's been one of the only ones, you know, that I... Oh, really? Yeah. That's a good relationship, and that's yeah, kind of a nice privilege to, for you to do that. Yeah, so we usually go out there for a week at least, you know, when we're doing an event like that. And so the rest of the time, we just eat out, you know, and and we have a list of places that, you know, we've been to before or haven't been to and want to go to and um, and then just see the city, you know. So, what are your some of your most memorable couple of your mem- most memorable food experiences in New York City? Well, I've been pretty much to all of Mario Pertelli's restaurants. Um, some of them I had great experiences. Some of them I thought it was really lousy food, <laughs> like uh, Del El, Del Posto, his his big place down in the Meatpacking District. Uh, we ate there um, right after it opened, and it was really it was. Really, I I was really surprised how. Well, you know, every, the one thing you learn is if you go someplace. I don't know if you've been there before again, but if you've been somewhere once. The, sometimes it's just not a great experience. But of course, if you don't have a good one, you don't want to go back. No, you know, there but, are too many. There are a couple of other places you can go in Manhattan instead yeah, of the yeah. place that you went. That you know, you didn't I, enjoy. I've, I've been to Blue Hill three or four times. I, I think that place is excellent. Um, you know. What about Little Italy? You ever been to John's on 12th? That's the last place I was when I was there. Yeah, I've been there. You know. What do you think? I thought it was okay. Okay. Know? You know. I, I mean, I, there's a lot of restaurants that I can't even remember the names of, you know. But, right. It's, but, um, you know, like um, um, La Bernadano um, was probably one of my most memorable meals in New York City. Do you remember what you had? Was it that? Was it Because I find... I can think, wow, that was fantastic. And then when someone says, what did you have? Well, I forgot about half the things. You know? Right. But, uh, you know, like he had braised octopus that he had braised in leeks for about three hours and then cut them really thin and then threw them on the grill until they were, you know, charred. And that was fantastic. And, and another one of the really good ones there, I had this tuna tartare, and they served it on this tiny, thin little wafer of bread that was toasted at had foie gras in between the bread and the and the uh, tartare. Um, that was fantastic, you know. You got my mind swimming. Where did I just have <laughs> octopus that was fantastic? And it's not coming to me. So what about Portland? What are your, some of your most memorable meals in Portland? Because you've been eating here since for a long time, before there was really a food scene. Well, you know, Wildwood, Higgins, uh, Blue Hour, Nostrana. I mean, those places... Do you have one specific? Do you have one, anything that sticks in your mind? Is well, um, I mean, I've eaten a lot of places. Um, the restaurant row, which is in the back. Oh, row. Yeah, which is in the back of. When Boston. did you go there? Did, I've been there recent? twice. I I went there right after they got written up in the New York Times. Okay. And uh, that was my we we did the uh, chef's tasting and sat at the the chef's bar. Um, did you ever work with Trent at his other restaurants? No, before? no. So that was your first exposure. Yeah, um, he's pretty amazing. He's um, the second time I ate there was uh, about two months ago. Um, uh, they had changed a few things, like they were offering bread, which I thought was a little odd, and they had a cheese plate, which I thought was a little odd. But um, yeah, with the, but but it was all great. It's all great. It's all, all great, and. Uh, uh, he does such an amazing job with uh, the fact that he's only using two uh, 
electric hot plates in there. I know. And, you know, he's... It, it shows to go, you, you don't... Yeah. You can, you can, yeah. But, you know, I mean, I've eaten a block and tackle, too, and um, I thought that was really... I really like uh, The Woodsman, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I think all of the all of Dwayne Sorensen's restaurants are... Yeah. And Trifecta, um, uh, Rich, who used to be at Higgins, you know, he opened that up um, with... Uh, can you find out for me? They have a, they have an oysters and ham appetizer, and I asked the other night, how do you, how am I supposed to eat this? Because it comes with some great ham, a couple of oysters, and a beautiful brioche bun with butter and honey. And I said, I said, I called over the server. And I said, how, exactly how? What's the recommended way to eat this? And she said, Well, I don't. It's an East Coast thing. And I said, No, no, no. I'm from the East Coast. This is not an, necessarily an East Coast thing. So I ended up having uh, eating everything. Already, it was already de- deconstructed and leaving it that way. But I was just curious. Yeah, you, I haven't had that dish in there myself. I've had almost everything in there. Um, you know, they just got a big award for having one of the best burgers in the United States. A trifecta. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got to try that. Yeah. So I, um, you know, th- things are changing in the world, uh, and. Uh, we're seeing a lot of a lot of changes in the marijuana world. Would you ever grow if we got to that point? Would you have you are you set up to do that? Would you want to do that? Do you know how that would be profitable? Or I guess it depends on regulations and laws. But well, is that the, something that thirty years ago you would have said, "Holy shit, I could actually do that"? Oh sure, legally. Thirty years ago, I would have probably jumped on board with that. You know, but uh, you know, it's interesting what's happening, like in Colorado. Um, I, I saw this interview on CNN. Um, I, well, it's been on there several times, but uh, they interviewed this whole family that, you know, the, the grandmother and grandfather and parents and all the children, grandchildren are all sitting around clipping buds, you know, and it's all going to some, you know, government legal dispensary. And then they interviewed this guy who was still doing a black market and, you know, they're, the taxes that they're putting on it in Colorado are quite significant. I think with the taxes, you know, an ounce of marijuana is like $600. Really? Yeah. You know, so this guy was saying, you know, I still can make good money on the black market because. Yeah. So why wouldn't you buy it on the black market? So. Well, you know, I guess some people probably do, you know. And then Washington, I don't know. They've been going. They, um, their system hasn't worked out quite. I, I, I don't think, think they figured out what they're doing. They're no, just, they still haven't quite figured they just out. They stamped what it as a decent idea. Yeah, um, you know, and now everybody's, you know, if you go anywhere downtown here in Portland, you there's people trying to get you to sign the ballots, you know, for um, legalize and tax it here in Oregon. And um, well, number one, I don't think it should be taxed. It's just a plant, you know. It's like well, but if you could if you could derive important revenue from it. Uh, you know, yeah, sure, there's that aspect of it that it could, you know, be beneficial to a lot of different things, you know. Put it towards schools. That would be it, fun. Thing. Yeah, you know, I mean. It'd be kind of ironic. Uh, so, life of a farmer. You're, how old are you now? Do you mind my asking? No, I don't mind asking at all. I'm going to be 64. And, uh, you look good, 64. Yeah. So, would you have done it all over again? Would you, this, this. Oh sure, I wouldn't have. I have no regrets in my life at all. Yeah, I, I, I feel grateful that I've been able to do what I do, and, um, you know, there's, you know, um, I'm so fortunate. I get to go in twenty, thirty different kitchens a week, you know, and see how all these different chefs are, you know, running their restaurant, which is just really interesting to me. Uh, I, I, I find restaurants to be quite similar to farming, actually. There's so many different things that um, hidden costs and the way that people prep food and food costs and you know what you you know what a chef's willing to spend money on and stay within the food food cost you know you know uh, you know 20. so you get to see a lot of different a lot of different styles a lot some, of, they, yeah. some you look at and you say that's impressive and others you look at and think how is this actually working or yeah you know i mean it's amazing you know some restaurants don't make stock at all and you go to some restaurants and they got five stock pots on the stove going constantly you know and, and are those the ones you're going to go back to yeah 
Okay. Like Brad Root, um, he you know he learned a lot of his craft from Greg Higgin and Higgins and Greg's. As so many have, right? There yeah, as so many have. Yeah, and he was. There were now about two or three generations removed. Yeah, from, you know, and Greg, uh, Greg's always got stockpots going. And I've never met the man. I've heard a lot about him. I have to. I'd love to meet him. Yeah, he's a very interesting guy. You know, he he went to uh, CIA out there in New York, and then he rode his bike out here one summer and fell in love with the Northwest and stayed forever, you know. And, wow. Uh, and you've been Northwest most all your life, correct? You grew yeah, up? Yeah, I, I was born in Portland, and I grew up in, up and down the Willamette Valley. And then the day I got out of high school, I moved to the coast and then ended up, you know, going to Europe for a couple of years. And, you know, I've traveled through Mexico and Central and South America and Southeast Asia and Europe. And, and would you rather be there or here? Um, you know, there's places in Italy that are so beautiful and you think, oh man, that'd be so cool to live there. And, but then, you know, trying to run a farm and, you know, I don't know. Hawaii is pretty interesting, you know? Right. You know, you can just vacation there. You don't need to live there. You know, my family lives there. I got a lot of family. Oh, you got, there. oh that's cool. Yeah. A little different. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hybrid somewhere in between the two. Yeah, get yeah, to enjoy yeah, it. Yeah. Thanks so much for uh, coming. I'm really glad we met out there. Yeah. That's one of the benefits of spending time on the coast. Yeah, it was uh, great it's talking. A small community. Uh, we'll see you soon. Okay, thanks. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX, or on Facebook at Right at the Fork, or online at RightAtTheFork.com. Right